Good morning. So for those of you who grew up in church, um, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to show you a Bible verse, um, actually half a Bible verse, and I want you to tell me if there's anything in it that is different than what you grew up being taught when you grew up in church. I realize there are some of you in this room that you did not grow up in church, um, and I'm very glad that you are here. You are welcome. This is a church for you. But just for this part of the sermon, um, for those of you who grew up in Sunday school and you got taught stuff about Jesus when you were a little kid, um, I just want you to tell me if there's, tell me if there is a word in this verse that sticks out to you as a word that they never said whenever you were learning about Jesus when you were a kid. All right, you ready? So this is Luke chapter 3, verse 23. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. Is there a word in that verse that you feel like you, they never said that whenever they were teaching you about Jesus? Anything, did you notice anything unusual that's different than what you were taught? As Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years old. Anybody catch it? Okay, yeah, about. Isn't that weird? Did anyone ever say to you that Jesus was about 30 years old? Or did they say when Jesus was 30 years old, he began his ministry? Yeah, when Jesus was 30 years old, he began his ministry, and then he died at what age? 33. And they would always teach it that way. Jesus was 30 when he started, he was 33 when he died, and they would say it with the certainty that you just said it. But what's interesting is, and now as an adult, I look back at the Bible and I go, wow, that's actually not what it says. First of all, as best as I can tell in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the only verse that talks about Jesus' age, like what age he was when he was an adult and he was doing ministry. This is the one verse that we have about that, and it says that he was about 30 years old. And I read that, and I was like, wait a minute. You know what's about 30 years old? 28 years old. You know what's about 30 years old? 32 years old is about 30 years old. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, Jesus may have begun his ministry as a 28-year-old or 29-year-old, 30-year-old, 31-year-old, I don't know. And then how long did he do ministry for? And the real answer is we don't know. I know that if you grew up in church, they said three years, and they said it like with certainty. But we don't know how long it was. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about how long Jesus' ministry was. John doesn't really say it either, but the reason, if you're wondering where we got that three years of ministry thing from, as best as I can tell, it's from the book of John. And it's the fact that John, over the course of telling the story of Jesus' life, there are three Passovers that are mentioned throughout Jesus' ministry. And Passover was a once-a-year holiday, so they went, okay, three Passovers, three years. So that, first of all, assumes that all three of those Passovers were three separate, different Passovers from one another. And also, as I was thought about it more, I realized three Passovers doesn't necessarily mean three years, does it? I mean, first of all, could I, would it be possible for me to tell a story about someone's life that covers a 25-month period and it have three Christmases in it? Is that possible? Yeah, if I started the story in November and then told the next 25 months, there'd be three Christmases in basically in a two-year period. So if Jesus' ministry started with a Passover, then you don't necessarily have three years. But here's another thing I thought about. Could I tell the story of someone's life, and let's say I picked a four-year period, maybe the four years they were in college, is it possible that I could tell the story of the four years they were in college and only specifically mention three of the Christmases during those four years? Is that possible? Yeah, that would be possible. And so I realized, wow, Jesus' ministry may have been closer to two years. It may have been closer to four years. He may have started when he was 28. He might have started when he was 32. He may have died on the cross when he was 30 or 35. And then all my Sunday school was all crumbling. Wait a minute, this is not what anyone ever said. Everyone always said 30, 33. Isn't that what you learned, right? It was, I mean, it was so sure that it was like, when G I always pictured Jesus like blew out his candles on his 30th birthday and then went to John the Baptist that afternoon. 
and got started. And so I wanted to teach you this for a couple of reasons. First of all, you might say, why does that matter, Mario? Well, I would say, I want to give you two answers to that. First of all, I would say, theologically, it doesn't matter. Theologically, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came here and died on the cross for our sins and paid the price for our sins. And the body that was on the cross that was in our place to save us from our sins, I don't think it matters whether that body was 30 years old or 35 years old. Jesus gave up his body, like my body given for you, so that we could be forgiven, and it worked. And it doesn't matter whether it was a 30-year-old body or a 33-year-old body or a 35-year-old body. He rose again. And, and God the Father like vindicated him. He validated everything that Jesus ever said. If we were sitting around going, well, how do we know that Jesus' death really worked? Right? Because I guess anybody could say, I'm going to die for your sins, and then they could go do something that ensures their death. But how would you know they really were like, that, that God accepted their death on your behalf? In the case of Jesus, God made it really clear. He telegraphed to us with something very clear. He brought him back to life. And so I don't think it matters whether he was 30 or 35 or 33 or 32 when he died. But the reason I bring this up is because I wanted you to know that there are times when the Bible is not precise. There are times when the Bible says Jesus was about 30 years old. And we don't exactly know what year this was. And we don't know how long it was that he ministered because the, the, the Bible doesn't tell us precisely how long his ministry was. There are Bible passages sometimes that say several days later and then it'll tell another story. And you don't know if that's like four days later or four months later. We don't know with certainty whether Philippians was written first or whether the Gospel of Mark was written first. You know, as far as like which one of those books was written first. We, we, they were probably both written right around the same time, but we don't know for sure. And so I wanted you to know, we can't produce an exact timeline. If you get, come to the Bible and you go, okay, I want to have a chart that says this thing happened and this thing happened and this thing happened and precisely I want to know exactly what happened on September 12th. Like, we can't do that. We cannot produce an exact timeline for biblical events. And I think that is important for you to know. If we're going to do a series on how to read the Bible, I think you need to know how much precision you can expect out of the Bible and how much you should think to yourself, I can say this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I can remember when I was in my 20s, and I was, I was sitting in church, and I was listening to the preacher, and the preacher said something that I never forgot, even though I did not write it down at the time. It stuck out to me as important. I thought to myself, like, I've never heard that before, and it stuck out to me as important. He said, he said the Bible is comprehensive, but it is not exhaustive. And at the time, once I understood what that meant, I realized, like, ooh, that is a helpful distinction. The Bible is comprehensive, but it is not exhaustive. In other words, the Bible tells us all that we need to know, but it does not tell us all that could possibly be known. Does that make sense? And that's different. So you can't go and go, oh, that's not in the Bible, then there's a problem with the Bible. No, it doesn't tell us everything that could possibly be known, but it does tell us everything that we need to know. And that is important. If we're going to do this series on how to read the Bible, I think we need to know that understanding this book is going to involve us understanding what God has revealed to us with the knowledge that he has not revealed everything to us, only what he wanted us to know. Amen? All right, so let's go ahead and get to our series. So we've been talking about how to read the Bible, and this is the outline of the series so far. Three weeks ago, we began by talking about translation. How did we get from the ancient he Greek and ancient Hebrew into English Bibles? We talked about interpretation the week after that. When we're reading our English Bibles, how do we interpret the words? How do we understand what they mean? 
Last week, we did a survey of the Old Testament. I'm hoping that some of you who maybe were unfamiliar um, and even, you know, like not very confident in the, the Old Testament, that, that once we talked about what the New Testament is about, that you'd be able to then go to the, new, go to the Old Testament. Did I say New Testament? Yeah, I meant Old. Um, last week, when we learned the Old Testament, the idea was for, to, for you to familiarize yourself with the Old Testament so that you would then be able to read it and understand what's going on. And today, we just want to do that same thing with the New Testament. I want to familiarize you with what the New Testament says so that as you go to read it, you're not lost. So the format for this week is the same as last week, literally the same five points. We just took the word old and changed it to the word new, but this is the same format as last week's sermon. We're going to talk about the books of the New Testament, the categories of books in the New Testament, the chronological order of the books, the historical storyline, and the theological storyline. Let's start with the books. Boom, there they are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, going all the way to 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation. These are the books of the New Testament. There are 27 ancient documents that make up the New Testament. The, the Old Testament is made up of 39 ancient documents. The New Testament is made up of 27 of them. If you're going to put these books into categories and talk about, well, what types of books are these so that we understand how they relate to each other and how to interpret them, um, I'm going to start with, um, I'm going to give you five categories, at least at first, and this is the first one. We'll start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called Gospels. Gospel is a, is a word that, like, it's translated into English into the word gospel, but it can also be translated good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news or glad tidings, okay? Great name for a church, okay? So, so these are the four gospels. They are the four good newses. In fact, in their long-form names, that's what they're called, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke the gospel according to John. So there are four books in the Bible that are the biographies of Jesus. They are the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, and in fact, our church is named after them and even incorporates them into our logo. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but this is the Good News Church logo. It is a cross, which makes sense because we're a Christian church, but have you ever noticed what the cross is made up of? Yeah, four books. What four books are those? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four good newses of the Bible are incorporated into our logo. Isn't that fun? That was, just, that was just free. Let's get back to the New Testament. All right, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, the good news of Jesus Christ. The next category of books just has one book in it, and that would be the book of Acts, and I've categorized it as other history. This is the same term that I used last week when I talked about Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and I'm calling it that for the same reason. That is, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel are books in the Old Testament that are the history of Israel. But I didn't want to just call them history because there was history that came before them in the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, those are history as well. And similarly, Acts is history, but it's not just the history book that's in the New Testament because the Gospels are also history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are history. They tell us the, the time period that happened before the book of Acts, what happened during the lifetime of Jesus. And then Acts tells us the next part of the story. So together, these are all history. The next set of books is Romans through Philemon, and we categorize these as Paul's letters. We say that because they are letters, and they were written by a guy named Paul. <clears throat> if you don't know who Paul is, Paul was a persecutor of the early church. Paul hated Christians. Paul hated Christians so much, and he was finding them and putting them in jail whenever possible during the time period of the Roman Empire. He, he was just, he, he, couldn't, he hated Jesus, he hated his followers, people that would go around and say that Jesus is Lord, people that would act like he was worthy of worship, people that would say he came back to life after he died, people that made it sound like he was the God of the Old Testament shown up to save the people. I mean, he thought that was a perversion of Judaism. He just could not stand it, and he used whatever influence he had 
and whatever power he had at the time, like under the authorities that were there, to be able to throw Christians in jail until one day Jesus appeared to him. He was traveling on a road and Jesus showed up. So this is Jesus. He lived, died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, and then appeared to Paul and said, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And he showed up in such a way that he blinded Paul temporarily. And Paul like, heard from Jesus himself. Like he, he met Jesus on the road that day, and Paul became a Christian. And Paul moved from being like, a, this huge persecutor of the Christian church to becoming the greatest missionary probably who has ever lived. He went around like, trying to hurt Christians and then turned around and tried to like, make Christians. And he went around and started telling people all about Jesus. And as he went around and told people about Jesus, there caused, this caused there to be multiple people in all these different places that knew about Jesus. And as these multiple people gathered together, they're called churches, right? So you have these people who gather together because they are serving one another and ministering to one another and worshiping Jesus together. And Paul would write letters to these churches, sometimes individual people, but most of the time churches, and tell them how they are to believe or what they are to, you know, what they are to believe or how they are to behave. And the reason for that is, is because Jesus had commissioned him to do so. So these letters become part of scripture because Jesus is the one who commissioned Paul to go and tell these people what to believe and what to do and all of that sort of stuff. He's one of his apostles. And so we take these letters, we put them in the Bible, they are called Paul's letters. There is an old word for the word letter that I'll just let you know, just in case you ever hear Christians talk about it. Sometimes this category is called, in fact, anybody know? Yeah, epistles, okay? And the word epistles is just, as best as I can tell, it's just a really, really old word for letters. And so people will call this epistles because, I don't know, I don't know why we can't let go. Um, but it, that, <laughs> that word is long gone. But I'm telling you, if you go and sign up for, if you go to a seminary, and I mean right now, in the year 2021, if you sign up for a seminary class, on, these, on, on this section of the Bible, the name of that class will be Pauline Epistles. And that means Paul's letters, okay? And so they, they keep doing that, and, and I, you know, more power to them. They can keep trying to hang on, but I am not participating because I, I just don't see any reason to call it by such old words. So Paul's letter. Paul's letters is what they are, the Pauline Epistles. And then the next um, set, section, Hebrews through Jude, are other letters because they are letters and they were written by other people other than Paul. Sometimes they're called the general epistles. But these are, written, these are other letters that are written by people like James and Peter. And then the final book out of the five categories is the book of Revelation. This is the final book in the New Testament, the final book in the Bible. And I'm categorizing it as prophecy. Um, I'm going to recategorize all these in just a minute. But for now, if we're going to put it into five categories, this is what they are. And Revelation is a book of prophecy. And when I say it's a book of prophecy... There are different Christians that have different opinions as to what the book of Revelation is about. But one thing I think we can all agree on, like every single type of Christian, is that the book of Revelation is definitely, and, in, and, and it was entirely a prophecy at the time that it was written, okay? And by, I'm using the word prophecy here to mean a prediction of the future. So when John writes the book of Revelation, it is a prophecy. It is talking about what is, hap what is going to happen in the future. It says, um, I, the, these things are being written so that you will know what soon must take place. So Revelation was written to say, this is what's going to happen in the future. Now, Christians have varied opinions on how much of the book of Revelation is still in the future versus how much of it has happened in the meantime. I don't know if you know this, but there are some Christians who believe that most of the book of Revelation has already happened that it was in the future at the time John wrote it, 
but that it was about the things that must soon take place. And there are lots of Christians that believe that those things did soon take place. At least many of those things did. And so they would interpret the book of Revelation as this very difficult time during the Roman Empire when all of these things were happening and, and that it's not literally a beast that's going to rise out of the sea, but rather things like the Antichrist figure in their minds would be like Nero, the Caesar who was in charge, and he was you know, hurting the Christians at that time. So there's some people would say that the book of Revelation has mostly happened. Then you have other Christians who would come along and say, well, no, 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 it, the book of Revelation began to happen shortly after it was written, and it has been unfolding ever since. And so they would say, it's not that, the, it's not that Revelation has happened, it's that it is happening. It has been happening for a long time and has continued to unfold. And then there are some Christians that would come along and go, no, 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 the book of Revelation is prophecy, and it still is from our perspective today. Like, it was in the future at the time John wrote it, and it's still in the future now. None of it has still happened yet. <clears throat> and in fact, that's the most popular view in America. I don't know what the most popular view is worldwide, but I know with Christians in America, that's by far the most popular view, is that almost all of it has still not happened yet. Now, who is right? Well, I am, of course. I mean, that's... <laughs> Isn't that what we always do with Bible stuff? Like when you go, well, who's right? Well, whatever I believe is right. You know, the wrong people are the people that believe stuff other than me. Um, the truth is, I do, I do not know who is right. And even if I did, there is no way that I would get into that in this sermon. So that's not happening. <laughs> but I will read to you my favorite part of the book of Revelation. And this is a part that I believe every single person who's a Christian can agree has not happened yet. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then later on in that chapter it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I think we can all agree that obviously has not happened yet, but I'm looking forward to when it does. All right, so if we have our uh, books of the Bible put into categories, this is how you would do it if you wanted to break it into five categories. Gospels, other history, Paul's letters, other letters, prophecy. However, you could simplify it more than this. You could simplify the New Testament really into just two types of literature, two categories. And if you were going to do it that way, this is how you'd do it. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. That's the history. And Romans through Revelation are the letters. That's really what you have in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts all combine our history. Acts is a different period of history, but they all are the history books of the New Testament. And then obviously Paul's letters and the other letters are all letters. And even Revelation is a letter. I don't know if you know that, but if you look at the first chapter of Revelation, the fourth verse, this is right early on in the book, this is what it says. It says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, what you'll notice here is right at the beginning of Revelation, you've got the person who wrote it, followed by the recipients, followed by a greeting. That is how almost every single New Testament letter begins. They start with the person who wrote it, the people that it was written to, and the greeting. So even Revelation is a letter. So we've got the history and the letters. And there is a little bit of overlap between these two genres, just like last week. For those of you that were here when we did the Old Testament, remember how I said... The prophecies sometimes have history in them or they have poetry in them. Well, similarly, we've got history here, but we've got some history in the letters. And in fact, 
we say the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is what we, what we learn about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those are the gospel accounts. But the truth is, the earliest gospel account we have is actually in the letters, in 1 Corinthians. I think pretty much every scholar, or pretty near, the vast majority of scholars believe 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were. And in this letter, which is about a bunch of other things, there is a section of it, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He gives us the history. He tells us what happened when it comes to Jesus, and he wrote it down before these books were ever written down. This is what he said. That's not what he said. That's John. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, he's already written like 14 chapters of this letter, and, but remember, this is a letter, so he's talking to real people, right? Now, brothers. Until he's talking to real people. He's brothers. I want to clarify for you the what? The gospel. I proclaimed to you you received it and have taken your stand on it. He's talking to people who believe this story, this good news about Jesus Christ. So the gospel predates Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, doesn't it? Right? There was a gospel before anyone ever wrote the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to Mark. There was a gospel. And in fact, so we know for sure the gospel existed in 1 Corinthians before it ever existed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the gospel existed before 1 Corinthians because when Paul writes about it, he's talking about something that they already knew, Right? I want to clarify for the gospel, I proclaimed, past tense, I told you the gospel before. Before it was ever written down in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, before it was ever written down in 1 Corinthians, verbally people had been going around telling people, you won't believe what Jesus did. So the good news of Jesus Christ has existed for years at this point, but he's reminding them of it. He says, you have received it, you already believe this, you've taken your stand on it, you are also saved by it, that is very important, saved by it. If you want to know how can I be saved... How can I have a right relationship with the creator of the universe? Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And then here it is. This is the gospel. This is before there was ever gospel of Mark. We got this gospel. Much shorter, much less, lot less details than Matthew and Luke and John get into. But this is the gospel. He says... This is the thing I told you, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, right? He's saying this happened, I don't know, maybe 20 years earlier, and he's saying some of the people that saw Jesus alive after he's dead, some of them um, are dead now, but not all of them. Most of them are around, and they can still tell you, we saw him alive after he was dead. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, which I already told you that story. He appeared to Paul personally. So that's a gospel account. That's the earliest written down one that we have. And it's found not in the gospels, but it is found um, in the letters, right? And I'm very thankful that God cause some other people to come along and give us a lot more information than just that one paragraph, aren't you? Okay, so, chronological order of the books. You ready? Yeah, because I was feeling some pressure this week, I'm going to be honest with you. Last week, I did a chart doing the chronological order of the Old Testament books, and you guys were into it. In fact, like, like I was standing right back there seven days ago, eight days ago, whatever, last Sunday, seven days ago, and people were coming up to me already and going, so you're going to do one of these for the New Testament? You're going to do one of these for the New Testament, right? Because you got a chart for the Old Testament. We need you to do one of these for the New Testament. And I felt a lot of pressure that I had to make a chart this week. 
And so I did, all right? Um, but lower your expectations. <laughs> because the New Testament is not as complex as the Old Testament. The Old Testament stretched out into this big complex thing that was, for at least some of us, very exciting. Um, but the New Testament is not like that. It has less moving parts. Like, there are less parts to the New Testament, 27 books rather than 39. And the Old Testament was written over the course of a thousand years. So there's a ton of history in it. The New Testament was written over the span of eh, 50 years. So nowhere near as much history being covered. So here we go. We're going to start with the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There they are. Okay, that's where the story begins, the, sto the biographies of Jesus. What happened when Jesus showed up? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us. The reason I have them stacked on top of each other rather than the way it was last week, remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the reason we did that last week is because Leviticus happened after Genesis. But we don't have it in this case because that's not what's going on here. It's not like Matthew's is a story, and then Mark picks up where Matthew left off, and then Luke picks up where, you know, in, in order. No, it's the same story four times. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order, you're going to go, this is repetitive. He keeps dying and rising again. What's going on? It's because it's the same story four times, all right? These are the four accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, if you get a little picky, they don't actually all start at the same point, because two of the four of them give us the Christmas story, and two of the four of them do not. Did you know that? Which two have the Christmas story in them? Anybody know? Yeah, Matthew and Luke. So Matthew and Luke's, if we're, if we're doing a chronological order, right, Matthew and Luke start their story about Jesus at his birth, whereas Mark and John start their story about Jesus in his adulthood. So if we're going to get a little bit more precise, we're going to make the chart show Matthew and Luke. We've got a little more. They begin the story earlier than Mark and John do. However, if you're going to get really picky, John, very briefly at the beginning of his gospel, actually talks about Jesus as being the one who created the entire universe. So if you were going to show that, we'd need to do this because John goes, <laughs> John goes all the way back to Genesis. But we're not going to be picky because we we're not picky around here. All right, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the next thing that happens historically is Acts. Acts is the next historical book, and it picks up right where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John leave off. Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ. So Acts literally picks up where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, leave off and tells the next section of the story. What did Jesus' followers do after he ascended to heaven? The approximate time for this would be the 30s and then 30s through 62, right? So this is during the time period that Jesus was, whatever he was, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. Okay, that's when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John take place. And by the way, I'm putting these books in the order, not that they were written, but in the order that the stuff happened, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts takes place from the 30s, picking up with the life of Jesus, going all the way to about the year 62 AD. And if you notice, there's a question mark next to 62, because I don't know for sure, all right? It, maybe it's 61, maybe it's 63, we don't know for sure where the book of Acts ends, but um, Paul is in house arrest in Rome, and we think it's somewhere around there in the early, in the early 60s AD. During this time period, we have a bunch of the books of the Bible that are written. James, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians. As best as I can tell, these books were all books that were written during the time period of the events in the book of Acts when Paul is going around being a missionary. Then you have the time period that happens after the book of Acts, and we don't have a history book for that, right? But there are things that happened after that. Well, I mean, that's obvious. Technically, we are in a time period after the book of Acts. But I mean, even in the first century, there were events that happened after the events that are recorded in the book of Acts, and there were books that were written during that time period. Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Peter, Hebrews, Jude, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So this is your chart for the chronological order of the books of the New Testament. I told you, it was not, it's, not as, 
It's not as complex as the Old Testament because it doesn't need to be. Like it's, it's just, it's a different book. I can't make this stuff up. This is how it works. This is the chronological order of the books. So let's go ahead and end the same way we did last week, which is, which is what is the historical storyline and what's the theological storyline? What, what happened in the first century and what does it have to do with God and us? So we'll start with the historical storyline. Okay? What happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts? The story begins with the birth of Jesus. That's Matthew and Luke. And that is the portion of the story probably you are most familiar with. Because there's a real popular holiday that revolves all around it. All right, you've heard about it before, right? So birth of Jesus, we know about. We've seen you know, people with a basketball under their shirt, and that's Mary, and she walks over to Bethlehem, and you've watched all the pageants, and you've seen the movies, and you've watched the TV shows, and we're very familiar with the Christmas story. Then the next significant thing that happens in the New Testament after that is Jesus as an adult ministering. Okay? They just skip straight to adulthood. Mark skips straight to his adulthood. John does. Matthew does. He was born, and then boom, he's about 30, right? Um, the only exception to that is there's one, as far as I know, there's just one single solitary story from Luke where Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. So you could put like one little thing right in there. And other than that, it's just skip straight from here to there, ministry of Jesus. Everything that Jesus did as an adult, he healed people and he told parables and he taught people and he revealed to us like who God is and, and what God is like. And through his actions and through his words, there were people that by the time he was done were convinced he was the Messiah predicted from the Old Testament, that he was God in the flesh. And then at the end of the story, this happens and this is by far the most important part of the story. The most important things that happened in history are chronicled right here after the ministry of Jesus, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. These are talked about at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even a little bit at the beginning of Acts. These, this is the most important things that ever happened. Jesus died on a cross. He died on the cross for our sins. When we talk about Jesus as our Savior, we are especially focusing on the fact that he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He was buried because he was really dead. He resurrected. He came back to life, actual dead person that came back to life. He hung out with his disciples for about 40 days um, and then ascended to heaven. That gets us to the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then brings us to the beginning of the book of Acts. What happened next after Jesus ascended to heaven? The birth of the church. So what we call the Christian church begins there. Jesus ascends to heaven, and now are these, there's these people, and we believe in Jesus, and what do we do? And they went around, and they told people about Jesus, and more people became followers of Jesus. And you have the birth of the Christian church chronicled in the first part of the book of Acts. And then the gospel spreads all over the world. And that would be kind of how you could summarize the second half of the book of Acts. That guy that I told you about, Paul, who was a persecutor, becomes a missionary and starts spreading the gospel all over. Other people do as well. And as the gospel spreads all over, I guess I, I'm going to read it to you from, from the scripture itself. This is a really interesting thought that um, when you look at Acts 1.8, you see early on there was a prediction that the gospel would spread all over. And in my opinion, I think that it happened even within the lifetime of the people who were writing about these things, at least from their perspective it did. So I'm going to show you. We're going to look at the very beginning and the very end of the book of Acts. So Acts 1.8 says this. And this is Luke telling the story just before Jesus ascended to heaven. This is the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended to heaven. Luke quotes Jesus as saying this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that almost is like an outline for the book of Acts. Like that's what happens. 
In the first chapter, Luke says that Jesus said, this is going to happen. And the rest of the book is, Jesus was right, it happened. So, and this is one of those examples of you got some, you got some prophecy in the history books. This is a prophecy, right? Jesus is saying, you will receive power. He's saying in the future, not today, but later. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what is the Holy Spirit going to empower you to do? You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people what you saw and what you heard. You're going to do that in Jerusalem. That's the city they were standing in at the time. In all Judea and Samaria, those would be nearby areas, and to the ends of the earth. And, and when Luke is writing down that Jesus said to the ends of the earth, I don't know for sure what he was thinking, but you've got to remember, this was written at a time where they don't, Luke didn't know that Japan existed, or Australia, or the U.S., or Brazil, or Russia, or whatever. He's in the Roman Empire thinking, whoa, Jesus says that this is going to spread not just in this city and not just in the nearby regions, but all over the whole empire. All of these tribes, all of these nations, all of these other people groups outside of the Jews, all of these people who've been conquered by the Romans, they're all going to hear about Jesus all over our world? And the reason I think that that might be how Luke took it is because if you read the rest of the book of Acts, that's what happens. I think Luke would say, yeah, that happened while Luke was still alive. Look how the book of Acts ends. This is the last two verses of the book of Acts. These, I'll explain in a minute, but it's fascinating. Then he stayed two whole years in his own rented house. The he there is Paul, the, the persecutor turned missionary. And the word stayed, if you read this like in context, all the words that came before this, the word stayed is kind of generous. He was under house arrest. Okay? He stayed two years in his own rented house. He went around preaching about Jesus, and he got arrested for it. And so they imprisoned him. And at this point in history, it looks like they didn't like that he was preaching about Jesus, and so they arrested him. But they must not have been like too worried about him. They must not have thought he was like super dangerous, because they don't throw him in a dungeon. They eventually do. But they, at this point, they do not. At this point, they just put him under house arrest. So he's able to live in this house, and he's stuck in this house in Rome. Okay? So he's in Rome, in this house, and he welcomed all who visited him. Now, why did he welcome all who visited him? Because he couldn't go visit other people, right? He was stuck in a room. But when people came to him, guess what they got an earful of? It says, he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever would come. So he's, he's missionarying from a stationary spot. He's just telling people from the room that he's stuck in, and then they can go tell the whole world. So he's teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with, and I love how this ends. It's so, I mean, it's almost ironic. Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without what? Without hindrance. Isn't that funny now that you know the story? What do you mean without hindrance? He was stuck in a room. Of course he was hindered, right? He was literally stuck in this house for two years. He was, he was hindered. Why in the world did Luke end it that way? And I, I think that Luke was saying, no, the gospel was not just in Jerusalem and not just in Judea and Samaria. By this point, it had moved all the way to the capital city of the Roman Empire, and people were coming and hearing about Jesus, and it was spreading all over the world. Paul was hindered, but the gospel was not hindered. And that's how the book of Acts ends. The history ends with, and this thing is going forth. And I think Luke would have said about Jesus' prophecy that the gospel was going to the ends of the earth. Luke may have very well said, like, yeah, that, that started in my lifetime, and it is only more true today. So that's the, uh, that's the historical timeline. Jesus is born, he ministers, he dies on the cross for our sins, he rises again, the church is born, the gospel spreads all over. Now, the theological storyline. What do we learn about God through all this? What does this have to do with us? 
So I want to pick up where we left off last week. For those of you that were here, remember in the, old, the end of the Old Testament, we said that sin had not been fully dealt with, but a Messiah is coming. Remember that? At the end of the Old Testament, sin has not been fully dealt with. There are still priests that are sacrificing animals for sins. And the sacrifice of animals does something, because God told them that it did, that it brought about this cleansing of sin. But not forever, because the next year they'd have to do it over again. And the next year they'd have to do it over again. And so sin continues on, and there's problems with sins, and there's sacrifices for sins, and there's judgment for sins. But a Messiah is coming. Remember when we talked about that? The Old Testament prophesied, and I don't know if they even were calling him the Messiah at that point in the Old Testament time period. They started calling him that by New Testament for sure. But in the Old Testament time period, there was a ruler that was coming. There was a Davidic king that was coming. There is this blessing that would be for all the Gentiles. There is this one whom the government will rest on his shoulders. There's the one that's going to come and make things right. There's the one who's going to come, like there's a new good day that's coming. One day the Lord is going to show up and make things new and make things right. And so they were waiting for that to happen, but it hadn't happened yet when the Old Testament ends, right? So we've got sin not fully dealt with, but a Messiah coming. And then you get to the New Testament, and what happens? The New Testament's the story of the Messiah came. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about. The Messiah comes and does several things, but one of the big things he does is he pays for sin, right? There were all of these animals that were being killed during the Old Testament time period, but they didn't really take care of the problem of sin forever. And then finally, there was one sacrifice that took care of sin forever. I have second, uh, First Peter here, chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you. Peter says, and this is talking about Jesus. He says, he himself bore our sins... In his what? In his body, on the tree. That's a reference to the cross, because it was made of wood. He himself bore our sins in his body. That in some sort of mystical, supernatural way, God took the sins of all of the people who would ever be saved, the sins of all of the people who would ever believe in him, right? The sins of all of the people. He took the world's sins, and he put them in Jesus' body, so that when Jesus died on the cross, he was not dying for his sins, he was dying for our sins. So Jesus pays the price for sin. What happens after that? He rises again. We know that it worked. God accepted that sacrifice. And then Jesus promises to come back and bring salvation. Now that's interesting. Because in one sense, we can say Jesus has already taken care of the issue of salvation. He paid for sin. We can be forgiven now because we can believe in Jesus, right? And he paid for our sins. He bore them in his body. And so there is a sense in which you can say right now, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you are saved, like past tense, like you're saved. God has saved you, that, that I can say about God right now, like Jesus died on the cross for my sins, therefore I'm forgiven now. I'm not waiting for forgiveness. I am in a right relationship with God the Father today. There is no condemnation from God to me right now as I stand here. That is good news. I am saved, and yet... There is a salvation that's still coming. The fullness of salvation is still coming. It's not here yet because sin is still here. We're, sin has not been obliterated yet. And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 to talk about the second coming. What's, the, what's he going to do the second time he shows up? So Hebrews chapter 9 verse 25 says, He, the he is Jesus, did not do this, the this is offering his blood to God the Father for our sins. He did not do this to offer himself many times, Right? He didn't have to die on the cross over and over again. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. 
right? The high priest would kill an animal and then a year later do it again and a year later do it again and a year later do it again. But Jesus doesn't have to keep dying on the cross for the sin, dying on the cross again, dying on the cross again. Let's renew another year. Let's, let's forgive, you know, let's, let's get enough forgiveness for part of the people. None of that. No, just one time. He would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages. I think that's a reference to the Old Testament time period. For the removal of sin. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross. For the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. That he died on the cross one time to remove sin. All of the other deaths, all of the other lambs, and all the other things had been a, a cleansing of sin that was not permanent. But finally, the removal of sin was taken care of when God, when, when Jesus Christ came here and sacrificed himself. But then there's something still left because there's still sin here. So look at this. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, we already talked about that, him bearing our sins, right? Having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a, what's the word? A second time. That's the second coming. He will appear a second time not to bear sin. He is not coming back to die on the cross a second time. That's already done. He's coming a second time not to bear sin, but to bring... Oh, that's a shame. How do we fix that? Ah, good. That looked really dramatic, though, didn't it? Like, the sermon is dying, didn't it? Okay. So, he, um, having been offered to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So there's a sense in which we're saved. He's already bore our sins. But there's also a salvation to come, and we are waiting for that. So, what does that look like? What does it mean when he comes back and he brings salvation? I believe there's going to come a day where he takes care of sin fully and finally, like there's no such thing as sin anymore. And there's a lot that can be said that happens when Jesus comes back and the final judgment. And, and, but, but one of the big things is that he, he restores the world. He makes all things new. That's, what, that's how Revelation says it. So if we're doing the theological storyline, we've got the Messiah comes, he promises to come back and bring salvation, and then one day he restores all things, the new heaven and the new earth. And so I want to read this to you from Revelation. It's the same verse I read earlier. It is good enough to read twice. This is what John prophesied. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Right? There's the way things had been for a long time, and it was, it was bad. There was a lot of sin, there was a lot of disaster, there was a lot of hardship. But there was a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And look at verses 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. It sounds like things are getting back to the way they were. Remember at the very beginning of the story last week, when Adam and Eve could just hang out with God and there was no sin? Right? He'll just be hanging out with humans again, right? He will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There won't be need for crying anymore. There won't be sad things anymore. I think C.S. Lewis, when he describes this, he, says, he talks about this is the day when all bad things become not true. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I think another way of putting that is the curse is broken. Those of you that were here last week, do you remember the curse? 
Remember, way at the beginning of the story, Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, and then they sin, and God curses the earth. And ever since then, there's been death, and there's been hardship, and there's been disaster. There's this curse that's been there all along. And then the, the book ends with, Jesus finally breaks the curse. It's done. The hardship is done. The death is done. Everything's good again. The, the Bible, in a sense, ends in the same way that it begins. It begins with a paradise, and it ends with a paradise. It begins with a paradise that was lost by us and then the restored paradise that Jesus brings so that the world is the way that it was supposed to be all along. That is good news. And so you are actually in this storyline. Like when you look at the historical storyline, you might go, well, I'm not in there because this takes place from the 30s right to 62. But if you look at the theological storyline, that's happened already. That's happened already. That's not happened yet. Every one of us in this room is right here somewhere. I don't know if we're here. I don't know if we're here. But we're right here on the chart. You are on the chart, waiting for the day that Jesus returns and makes all things new. And we are waiting. And in the meantime, as we wait for Jesus to return, we trust him, and we follow him, and we worship him, and we serve him. Until he comes back, and if we die before he returns, we, our spirits, go to be with him, and then one day there will be a resurrection where our bodies are resurrected and get to partake in this for all of eternity. That's what the New Testament teaches. And that, my friends, is the greatest story ever told, the mission of Jesus Christ. Like, Jesus did not come here to start a new religion. He came to fix everything. That's the story. Our great salvation, the restoration of all things. And so when you pick up your Bible and you read it, I want you to know, that's what you're reading. You're reading the story about how we screwed up everything and God is fixing literally everything. That's why you got to read this. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the, the truth of your word and I thank you for revealing it to us. And I thank you for telling us enough you did not tell us everything. <laughs> you couldn't tell us everything. I don't think we're capable of knowing everything. But you are. And you revealed to us what we need to know. And so I thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I pray that you would help us as a church to be good um, like readers, studiers, that we would understand you and what you've revealed. I pray that you would use this series in people's lives, please, to help people to understand your word better as they read it. And I pray that there would be people who would like, come to know you or come to know you better or, or just worship you in a different way as they understand you better. I pray you'd help us to be people who understand you and people who are, are just stoked, so excited about what you have done for us and what you are continuing to do and what you will do one day. And help us to trust you in the meantime as we wait. We love you and we thank you for your grace. Amen.